0: Good morning, church, and what a great start to this morning, amen? Um, We had a a great start at 7 a.m. with the more spiritual people. (laughs) Just kidding, just kidding. Uh, I can't even use that joke at 11, those people, I mean, that's... Like, what were you waiting for? It's Easter Sunday, 11 o'clock, the day's almost over, I mean... (laughs) Anyways, all good. Welcome to everybody here uh, to our church. Welcome, Harvest, to our guests. So so glad that you've joined us here today. And uh, uh, the worst part about saying what I just said, of course, is, is on the live stream. So welcome to you. And it's out there on the internet, and everyone knows what I just said. So... Praise the Lord uh, for that. Uh, Jordan mentioned uh, hbc.info in the Connect form, but if you go to hbc.info, and this is mostly for our guests and newcomers, uh, you go there, you can, you'll see the sermon outline that I'm about to speak on. You'll see quotes that I'm using, links, other helpful links and recommended reading, other resources that are uh, linked there at hbc.info, and that can be super helpful uh, for following along with uh, what we're going to see in God's Word uh, today. All right. I just want to start. Well, I want to start by saying I like the world. Uh, what I mean to say actually is I like the Earth. I like the Earth. I'm much less fond of the world. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, in fact, uh, the Earth. When I think about the Earth, the physical planet we live on, it's really uh, remarkable. We are um, 150 million kilometers away from our sun. We are in a perfect Orbit that creates the optimum conditions to allow uh, for liquid water to exist on our planet and therefore for life to exist. Uh, Even though we're now looking deeper and deeper into space through NASA's James Webb Telescope and through sending deep space probes out, uh, even though we're doing that, uh, we still cannot find any other known celestial body that orbits in the way that the Earth does. Um, and is composed of the elements that allow for life. Incredibly, we are told that there are as many as, estimates are, um, and this is a number that's mind-boggling, but as many as one trillion species of flora and fauna on our planet. And I'll say again, the earth is truly remarkable. The world, however, much less remarkable. Remarkable. And when I use those two words, and and using the word world, and and the reason why I'm talking about this is because the word world is used several times in the passage we're going to look at today. When I use this word, I mean the human system that we find on planet earth. Earth refers to the physical planet on which we live, and the world refers to the societal system that is found on the earth. And at the creation, God placed human beings on earth and it was perfect and he declared it to be good. But once sin entered the picture, these human beings created a society, the world as we know it, with countries, with borders, with cultures, with governments, all of which are marred by sin. And you and I, we have come into this world, sinners ourselves. Sin imputed to us as part of Adam's race, and we have to learn how to navigate this world to find our place in it. And it's a great challenge for us as human beings, one that often leaves us, trying to find our place in the world, often leaves us confused. It can leave us weary, angry, depressed, and for some even despairing of life. Now for the Christian, this gets sorted out for us by God Himself and is something in fact that Jesus prays for here in John 17, that we would know, this is what He prays, that we would know how to live in the world as believers. And so we're going to look at John 17, uh, 14 through 19, uh, several verses in the middle of this chapter And this is the third message of four in a series working through John 17, which in its entirety is a prayer that Jesus prayed. It's called the High Priestly Prayer uh, by some, and it's found as part of the Upper Room Discourse when he met with his disciples prior to his arrest, prior to his crucifixion. And so we're reading here, we're jumping into the middle of the prayer. We started it on Palm Sunday. We heard part of it on uh, Friday from Jordan on Good Friday, and we'll finish this up next week. As we uh, complete what Jesus prayed here. But 14 through 19, let me pray these verses or uh, read these verses and then we'll get into the, the passage. Jesus praying, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world sanctify them in the truth your word is truth as you sent me into the world so i have sent them into the world and for their sake i consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth jesus prayed here jesus prayed that as a believer I would know to be, see this first of all, I would know to be in the world. Now let me pause before we get into this and say, uh, this is a gathering of the church, and it's Easter Sunday, and this is the big Sunday, and this message is a prayer for believers, and so I'm primarily speaking to believers here today, but I also understand that on a Sunday like this, there are more people who don't know Christ who are invited, who are guests. There might be more who are actually watching on the live stream right now who don't yet know Christ, and I'd invite you to listen in and maybe to learn something about what it means to be a believer, but primarily, I just wanted to lay it out, primarily this message is for believers. That's why the statement says, Jesus prayed that as a believer, I would know to be in the world. So Jesus sets the stage here for all believers, because he says in verse 14, I gave them your word. He's praying to the Father. He's talking about his disciples. I gave them your word. They had actually heard and received the gospel. On, on Good Friday, Jordan preached to the verses just before this, and we saw in verse 8 the threefold response they had to the word of God. They received it, they knew it to be true, and they believed the word of God. They received the gospel, and so because they received the gospel, because they were now people who were governed by this book, Jesus goes on to say the world has hated them because they're not of the world. And we might say, you know, like, I don't know people who hate me as a result of believing the Word of God, and I just want to say to you, just wait, just Wait. I think we see the societal trends, we see the way things are going, and increasingly the value system of those who believe in Jesus Christ and who embrace the Word of God are becoming more and more at odds with the society around us. And it will become more and more true in the Western world that if you believe the Bible, people will hate you. And that's what Jesus is praying for. Why? Because they're not of the world, we're going to come back to that phrase. But in, in light of that, Jesus prays, verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. I mean, this would be, this would be the best case scenario. Can you imagine? I come to a realization of the gospel. I, I pray to Jesus to forgive my sin. And instantly, he takes me to heaven. How is that not the best plan? I don't have to deal with sin anymore. I don't have to deal with temptation. I don't have to go through any trials. I just receive Jesus and immediately get transported to heaven. I feel like that would be very successful evangelistically. (laughs) But that's not the way God set it up. He doesn't take us away from this corrupt, sin-infested world. Even though that sounds very attractive. We ought to be wearing t-shirts that say, get me out of here, Jesus. God says, no, you got to stay. In fact, Gerald Borchardt says this, the prayer of Jesus was not for God to send something like rescue planes to evacuate the disciples from their hostile setting in the world. Such a plan would destroy God's mission through them. Nor was it to wrap them in some plastic, danger-free safety casing where they would never encounter evil. But the prayer of Jesus was to protect them from succumbing to the onslaught of evil, Or the evil one. And so if you're a Christian, again I'm speaking to you, if you're a Christian, you already know this. You know this to be true. Following Jesus does not give you a pass on hardship and temptation in this life. No one should ever come to Jesus thinking that Jesus is in fact the solution to my temporal problems. A lot of people come to Jesus that way. I just want him to solve the current problems that I'm facing. In fact, Jesus is a solution, not to our temporal problems, but to our greatest and eternal problem of sin and death. But He guarantees nothing with respect to the temporal, physical world problems that we face, despite, by the way, despite the nonsense that you might hear from prosperity preachers who do indeed promise these things. Now, if you're not a Christian, that's if you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, now I'm going to say this, your current circumstances, they might in fact be a catalyst, <clears throat> a catalyst to you being open to the gospel, but solving those issues that may be bringing you to the place of thinking about giving your life to Jesus, the anxiety, the marriage breakup, the addictions, the financial pressures, whatever it happens to be that is not the primary reason to follow Jesus. He's not your therapist. He's not your guru. He's not your debt counselor. He's your savior. And he wants to solve the biggest problem you have. And we're going to come back to that. So here here we are. We're here. We're still in the world. We love Jesus and we're still in the world. And Jesus prayed that as believers, we would know to be in the world, but see this next, but not of the world. This is what he prays in verse 16. They are not of the world. Same phrasing in verse 14. Didn't want us to miss it. Where he also says, speaking of himself, just as I am not of the world. If you're a genuine believer, you are now, by virtue of your faith in Jesus Christ, You are now a citizen of a different kingdom. Yes, you still have an earthly citizenship, whatever that might be, Canadian or some other country, the the United States or Nigerian, or or you might be Nigerian or El Salvadorian or whatever you happen to be. But those are all secondary to the fact that as a Christian, you're a citizen of a different kingdom. In fact, Paul wrote to the Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven. The book of Hebrews, a sermon uh, transcript. The preacher there says, Hebrews 11, he's talking about the, Hebrews, uh, the heroes of the faith in Hebrews, and he says that they were looking forward to a city that has no foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So it's not one of the great cities or the great countries of this world that he's talking about. And in fact, later on in that same chapter, Hebrews 11, these heroes of the faith, having acknowledged that they were strangers and aliens and exiles on earth, we're seeking a homeland, and they desired a better country that is a heavenly one. And the bottom line is, if you're a Christian, and you feel like the longer you go on with Christ, you feel more and more dissonance with the world around you. You feel more and more out of step with society. And that's because you're coming to a greater realization that you don't belong here. You are not of the world. By virtue of the new birth, you receive a whole new set of values, a whole new perspective on the world. You are of God's kingdom, a kingdom not yet fully realized on earth, but one that is promised at the end of the age. And if that's a reality for you, then you must be every day of your life rejecting the world's lies. Rejecting its lies. Reject the lies that the world tells you. Jesus prays that the Father would, this is verse 15, the latter part, keep them from the evil one. The evil one here, the devil, Satan. His M.O. is deceit. Earlier in this same gospel, Jesus said, you know, people, some people think, unbelievers think that Jesus only says nice things, that Jesus only says kind things, that he's always compassionate, always encouraging, always loving, and then you read these sections where he's talking to religious leaders, and you realize that we have this incomplete picture of Jesus, because sometimes Jesus said some pretty harsh things, isn't that right? Right? I mean, here's, here's a good example. He's talking to the religious leaders of the Jewish people, the people who cared for the temple and made it possible for people to enter into the presence of God and worship. And he says to them, John 8:44, You, religious leaders, you are of your father the devil. Now, this stands in contrast really to something. Jordan took us through in the earlier part of chapter 17 where we're addressing of God in heaven as the Holy Father, the set-apart one, the, the perfect one. But here Jesus is referring to these religious leaders as having a very different father, the devil. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Sometimes I wish Jesus would be clearer, you know? Like sometimes I just wonder what he's getting at here. The devil's a liar, and the world system that he has set up, listen, it is just designed to perpetuate his lies. What are his lies? I could talk about a lot of them. We could spend the rest of the morning talking about lies. Here's a sampling. He, he lies telling us that there is no God. Or he tells us that you are your own God. Or that if there is a God, you get to dictate the terms of how you approach him. Or he teaches us that all paths lead to God. Or that all gods are one and the same God, just different expressions of him, different forms. He lies to us telling us that God won't send anyone to hell. Or that he's going to give everyone a second chance on the other side. Or that you can pay off your sin debt somehow by doing some good here. Or spending some time in purgatory or having a relative light a candle for you. These and many other lies like them, these are all lies. And Jesus is praying that we would see that and not be taken in by his deceit, not be taken in by the world's deceptions, and instead that we would be embracing his truth. Look what Jesus prays next, verse 17. Sanctify them. Sanctify my disciples. Sanctify those who follow me. Sanctify them in the truth. The word sanctify means set them apart. They're in the world. They they, they shouldn't be of the world. So we're going to sanctify them. We're going to set them apart from the world so that they're different. They're holy. They're righteous. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Your Word, the Word of God, the Scriptures inspired by the Holy Spirit, what we call the Bible, is the truth. And I'm going to tell you right now, because a lot of you are online, listening to a lot of different preachers and teachers, but don't trust any preacher or pastor who downplays the authority of God's Word. Don't trust them. They're spouting the lies of the evil one. They've bought into the culture Don't listen to a pastor or preacher, no matter how compelling he is, no matter how clever his arguments sound, no matter how progressive he is proclaiming himself to be. If he is undermining the authority of God's Word, then he has no standing, and he does not represent God's kingdom. We proclaim, it's our first pillar, we proclaim the authority of God's word without apology. The thing we're proclaiming, not authoritatively, I'm not, I'm not pro- proclaiming anything authoritatively, it's the authority of God's word. I have no authority in me. I'm merely a servant. The authority is in the inspired word of God. Now, we have to embrace his truth. But even using that word, like using the word truth in our society today, that's a trigger word, right? You start talking to unbelievers about truth, and you'll see how quickly they get triggered. Because here's what you're going to hear, and this, this is the postmodern world that we live in today, and their view of, of truth, they're going to say, their objection right away will be, what truth? We're talking about your truth? Or are we talking about my truth? In fact, a core tenet of postmodernism is truth, even if it exists, cannot be known. So they're willing to acknowledge, yes, there could be a truth, but there's no possible way we could ever figure out what that is. This is the world that we live in. In fact, this this is how it's playing out in our society today. Can I take you back to high school for a moment? Is that okay? Nine o'clock, you with me? You slept in today. I mean, not as long as the 11 o'clock people, I get it, but still. <laughs> high school. High school English class, probably, or maybe some political side class that you took. George or- Orwell's 1984. How many people read it? Raise your hands. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of us read this book. And, and I remember reading it back in high school. And, and George Orwell, who is a futurist, wrote this novel, and he saw this coming. He saw what's happening today, coming. And he wrote in 1984, this is a quote from the book, the party announced that two and two made five. The party announced, it's a totalitarian society, two and two made five, and the statement is, you would have to believe it, because the society had now determined that this was true. Now when I read this, I'm gonna date myself, because I was in high school in the late 70s, early 80s, so when I read this, and when my classmates read it, we thought it only referred to those countries that were behind the Iron Curtain, and that it could never happen in Western society. Didn't we believe that? We thought, this is silly, this is cute, this is a warning about communism, this is never gonna happen in our democratic institutions here in the West. Well, I would invite you this afternoon to open Google and search, two plus two equals four. And you're gonna see a number of articles. One, Wall Street Journal article talking about educators in California who are now saying that we cannot say that two plus two equals four. And I'm like, did you spend so much time partying in university (laughs) that you did not read George Orwell? Because they're arguing two plus two no longer equals four, or at least we can't say that. Oh, that's California. We're all the way up here in Ontario. No! There's an article in, in The Sun this past week about Ontario educators who are in positions of influence in the public system in this province who are saying the exact same thing. And here's what they're saying if you've not read any of this and you can chase this down later. Two plus two equals four is a racist comment and, and discriminates on the basis of gender. Okay, that's where we're going. That's the society that we live in. And so this undermining of what's objectively true permits society to do as it pleases. And this has massive implications, implications that are stunning in terms of their effect on society and morality, but also on people's ability to be reconciled to God. It's a direct assault on the truth of the gospel. And again, this is what Jesus is praying for that we would understand that those who believe in Jesus Christ have a very different worldview. That we should not succumb to the pressure to conform to what the world peddles to us, no matter how intense that pressure is. I mean, the most helpful thing that I can give you in this message is an understanding that God is, in fact, the author of the meta narrative, or what the children would call God's big story. And there is a big story overarching all of human history. And this is it. This is what we have to believe, despite the fact that society is going to pressure us to not believe this. Seven essential truths about us and our world. This is a worldview. If you're in, in high school or you're in college university and you're taking worldview courses and you're going in as a Christian, this is your worldview. Seven essential truths about us in our world. One, God created everything and declared it good. But sin entered the creation and human beings are now fallen and by nature sinners. Secondly, that sin separates us from God. Thirdly, the consequence of our sin is death, both physical and spiritual death. Four, but Jesus, God in human flesh, died for our sins in our place as our substitute. Five, that is to say, Jesus paid the price for our sins. Six, and his sacrifice satisfied the wrath of God. And seven, so that we could be reconciled to God. If you go to hvc.info, there's all kinds of scriptures that get attached to all seven of those points. I built that list out of a section that I read in Elisa Childers' book, Another Gospel, which is a phenomenal book. There's other recommended reading resources on all of this matter of worldview and how we navigate through the world. All of that is in uh, the notes. But in light of believing this, if we believe these seven tenets of Christianity, these essential core doctrines, and shape our worldview in this way, so much falls into place and becomes clear about the world around us. So Jesus prayed. That as a believer, I would know to be in the world, but not of the world, rejecting its lies and embracing his truth, and here's the next part, and committing myself to work in the world, to his work in the world. Because knowing what I just laid out changes everything about how we see the world and how we see our own our own place in the world. Jesus' prayer continues and he said to the Father, verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them. And he's, again, praying most specifically for the disciples who are right there in the upper room with him, but then as a a consequence, as an application of that for every one of us. Jesus was sent by the Father, as we saw in the seven essential truths, to carry out the long prophesied mission to crush the serpent's head, Genesis three fifteen, And to offer salvation to humanity, as the apostle Paul said, 1 Timothy 1, 15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's his mission. And if that was his work, and if he gave, the, he gave the same work to his disciples, and then they handed it off to the church, Acts 1, 8, Jesus is ascending, you'll be my witnesses, In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So he gave this mission to us. And so we exist as Christians to tell people that Jesus came into the world to save sinners far from, we're not abandoning the world to the devil. We're not looking for an exit plan. We're not looking to be put in some plastic casing to be protected from it. We're going to be so sure about the thing we believe and we're gonna go into the world to tell people about him. And we're gonna do that. We're gonna tell people that Jesus came into the world to save them, to save sinners. I'm gonna do it in direct and indirect ways. Some of the direct ways, pretty obvious. We're going to tell them through preaching. There are many people who come and they sit in these seats, they watch on the live stream and they hear the message and they give their life to Jesus Christ. Through preaching. There are many who receive the invitation to come and see. You invite people, they come, they see, they hear, they respond. There are opportunities where you go and tell, where you have conversations with people in their home, in your home, at a coffee shop, or in the workplace. You share your story, or you share the gospel itself, and they come to faith in Jesus Christ. These are the direct ways that we fulfill the mission, but then there are a myriad of, of indirect ways as well, not the least of which is living righteously. I mean, Jesus prayed here that we would be sanctified, set apart in the same way that he was set apart, that we would be holy and living such righteous lives that people would see that and be drawn to Christ. Another indirect way is that we love one another inside the church, that Christian loves Christian inside the church. John 13, 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another in the church, and people would be drawn to that. So Christians loving each other is so very important. Oh, that we could banish Twitter forever. <laughs> Living holy lives, loving one another, loving our neighbors. People don't know Jesus, Matthew twenty two thirty nine. 39 The first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. You say, I don't even know my neighbor, let alone love them. But this neighbor is like every other person in your life who doesn't know Jesus. Not only love your neighbor, but if you go to Matthew 5, we're told there to also love our enemies. Love the people who hate you for loving Jesus. Love the people who are trying to stamp you out. Other indirect ways, engaging in justice and compassion efforts that exemplify the heart of God toward those on the margins, Luke 4, 18 and 19. Another indirect way is leading our families while well, training our children, raising them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, Ephesians 6, 4. Or having a marriage that exemplifies the gospel as we see Paul talking about in Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Your marriage is a picture of the gospel to others. And in a more general sense, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, he called us to be salt and light in the world. To flavor, to influence, to help change, to direct in and through the darkness, to Christ. In all of these direct and indirect ways, believer, we engage in the mission, the work of Jesus Christ. And as we do that, there's no denying that the world has made a tremendous mess of things, and that provides the perfect environment for us to carry out this work. The political polarization we're seeing today is so troubling. It's the main reason why I don't ever want to watch the news. We have an inability to disagree respectfully in our society today. That now, if I disagree with you, I somehow have to also hate you. That's the society and culture that we live in. There's so much anger and rage, there's so much violence. We have a growing gap between rich and poor. We have increasing racial tensions rather than than making the progress or or acknowledging the progress we've made. Somehow now we need to keep talking about it and, and keep increasing the tensions. We have all the confusion that's been created around sexuality and gender. And underlying all of this which makes it almost impossible to see how it could be fixed. There's this underlying and very overt mistrust of government, a mistrust of the educational system. We're in trouble. A mistrust of business, of the media. where We have, we have built in an economic fragility because of the need to globalize. And there is a natural and justified increasing fear of war. The world's a mess. And into that mess God has spoken. Giving us his wonderful meta-narrative that includes the plan to redeem all things. He offers salvation to the individual and he provides hope for the end of the age and the apocalyptic visions That He will renew His marred creation and He will usher in for all eternity the new heavens and the new earth. And He has privileged us by including us and engaging us in this work. And the question, believer, is this. Will you commit yourself to this mission? And you should. And I should. Because He committed himself to me. This is the primary motivation for me to take up this mission. It's that Christ committed himself to me. Jesus committed himself to his mission, his work, and that should be all the motivation I need as a Christian. Jesus finished this part of the prayer by saying in verse 19, and for their sake, for the sake of my disciples, for the sake of everyone who will believe and follow me, for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. The words consecrate and sanctify in, in the Greek are the same word, but with slightly different emphases here. In order for us to be sanctified in truth, again, the word means to be set apart in truth, to be saved and living as saved, knowing the truth about this world, about humanity, about God and His Son, In order to be set apart in the truth like this, Jesus needed to consecrate himself or to set himself apart or to be devoted to this mission, to be committed to it. Now recall, on this particular Sunday... On this particular Sunday, we're celebrating in a more special way the pivotal part of that plan, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, Christians throughout history have worshipped on Sundays as a celebration of the, as the, of the resurrection. We have 52 celebrations of the resurrection, one every week. On this particular Sunday, we remember it in a more special way. On Friday, we gathered to reflect on the cross, His death. But when Jesus prayed this prayer that we're looking at in John 17, none of that had happened yet. He's praying before the events of the cross, before the events. It's Thursday night when he's praying this prayer. And the cross and the tomb had not yet happened. And so he's he's committing himself. He's consecrating himself before the Father to the crushing defeat of the cross. A death that came in the cruelest of ways. And again, notice he said he did this for our sake, for their sake, for me and for you. And this should be the only motivation that any Christian needs to be engaged in the work of Christ. But what about those who are not yet committed to Christ? It would be wrong of me not to make an appeal, not to speak to you for a moment. If you want your life to make sense... If you want to get to the place where you understand that you're part of God's meta narrative, you're part of God's big story in the world, that you have a purpose that rises above this broken world, that you can have what Paul talks about in Philippians 4 7. You can have the peace that surpasses all understanding, even in the midst of a world that has gone mad. You can be at peace. You can be at the place where you feel your heart come to life in a way that your heart has never felt. And you can do this by looking into the tomb and seeing that it's empty. As Jordan said earlier in the service, the angel came to the women. The angel said to them, Don't be afraid world's in turmoil. It's a mess. You feel like your entire world has come crashing in with the death of your Savior. Do not be afraid, the angel said. I, I know you're looking for Jesus who is crucified. And Then the angel said, He's not here. He's risen just as He Said. You've got to come to the tomb and see that it's empty. Come by faith to receive the forgiveness of your sin and to find life in Jesus Christ, and what, whatever is preventing you from doing that, whatever lies you're still believing, lies that the evil one is telling you through the world system that we live in. Simply call out the lie. And declare in the midst of your own brokenness, to declare what Don Carson said, I'm not suffering from anything that a good resurrection cannot fix. Jesus committed Himself to me and to you. Say it and believe it because ultimately that's what He prayed for. That you and I would know the power of the resurrection in our lives. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, I'm a very grateful that you have given us your word and that it testifies to Jesus Christ and to his resurrection. Thank you that Jesus was committed to us, sanctified, set apart, consecrated for his work. And God, I pray that as believers we would be stirred by this, we would be motivated and encouraged on this Easter Sunday to be even that much more consecrated and devoted to the mission that you've given to us in the world. And God, I do pray for those who might be watching on the live stream or who are here in the room and who don't yet know Jesus. God, that today would be the day that on this day, the gospel came alive to them. They understood their part in God's big story. And they surrendered to Jesus Christ. Give them life through your son. Save them, Father. And give them the hope that surpasses all understanding. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior.